Welcome to another episode of Good Value by Antipodes. Environment will play a big role here. Uh, it, it can't be sustainable uh, to supply half of the, the world's aluminium uh, based on uh, coal-fired uh, electricity. We see that consumers are willing to pay an extra premium for greener products. It's Alison Savas, and that was Paul Kildemont. Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer of Norsk Hydro. The Norwegian company listed on the Oslo Stock Exchange is one of the largest aluminium producers in the world. Now, aluminium smelting is an old world industry, but usage is increasingly new world given aluminium is light, recyclable and stronger than steel for its weight. And Norsk Hydro produces its aluminium predominantly using hydropower, which is sustainable. Norsk Hydro is a holding in the Antipodes Global Funds. In a market that has been enamoured with tech over the recent period, Norsk Hydro's share price has almost doubled in 12 months. But we think the market is yet to fully appreciate aluminium's favourable supply and demand dynamics and Norsk Hydro's unique position as one of the greenest aluminium producers. Over the next 30 minutes, you'll hear Paul and I discuss Norsk Hydro's competitive position, the demand outlook for aluminium from megatrends such as electric vehicles, packaging and energy efficient buildings, as well as the factors weighing on industry supply. Is the perfect storm forming for green aluminium? Paul, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Alison. This is a conversation that, you know, I've been looking forward to for, for some time now. At Antipodes, we've been discussing Norse Kedro with our clients for quite a few years. But I wanted to start our chat with your elevator pitch. You know, what is Norsk Hydro? Well, Norsk Hydro is one of the, the few fully integrated aluminium producers uh, in the world, actually. Um, and, and we're a company that is uh, currently very well positioned to benefit from the ongoing megatrends. We are an aluminium producer with a strong renewable energy backbone, uh, which is uh, gaining uh, quite some interest uh, in the current market environment. Being fully integrated means that we have positions all across the value chain. So we have bauxite and alumina in Brazil. Uh, we have a big uh, primary aluminium system uh, in, in Norway. We have hydropower operations uh, in, in Norway. And we have a, a global extrusion uh, system uh, worldwide. We also have recycling capabilities, uh, which goes uh, across uh, the value chain, uh, feeding into the different parts of the, the business areas. You touched on that renewable backbone, and I think we should first delve into that further. Norsk Hydro talks about green aluminium. Can you explain what this means and how you achieve it, and also how what you do stacks up against competitors? Well, in, in our company, we say greener aluminium, um, as green aluminium is something we have an ambition to, to come to at a certain point of time. But as long as there is uh, some carbon emission in our production process, uh, we, we, we define it as greener than, than some of the alternatives. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and this topic is extremely interesting. You know, I've been in Hydro uh, since uh, 2008, and we've been talking about environment becoming a differentiator at some point in time. And when that happens, we believe that our company would be in a good position to benefit from it. And and the reason for that uh, is that um, the average aluminium uh, producer uh, emits uh, around uh, 16 to 17 tons of CO2 per ton aluminium produced, 
when you take into account the indirect emissions, that is the emissions that uh, are produced when you produce energy. And that's due to a large uh, part of aluminium producers basing themselves on coal-fired power production. In hydro, uh, as I mentioned, uh, we have a renewable energy background, hydropower, and that brings the footprint down to around four or even below that uh, for the, the aluminium that we produce in Norway uh, or in Canada, uh, for example. So that means that we are four times lower uh, than the, the, the global average, uh, which is a big differentiator uh, currently. Let's, let's talk more about that, the broader aluminium industry. You know, there are some really interesting trends happening in, global, in the global aluminium market at the moment. Let's start with demand. You know, what do you see as the key demand drivers now and also over the next decade? And do you think they will lead to an acceleration in demand? Well, aluminium tends to move quite in line with, with global GDP. And that's because we are exposed in many of the different segments um, of the, the, the global <laughs> GDP index. And the two largest uh, consumers uh, of aluminium uh, is uh, the transport industry and the construction industry. But we're also very well present in packaging, electrical, consumer durables and machinery and equipment. And going forward, we expect to see growth in all of these areas, uh, but growth more in line with the current megatrends. If you, for example, look at the auto, the, the, the megatrend there is a sustainable and, and smart mobility. Uh, as people are moving more and more to electrical vehicles, they need the vehicles to be lighter uh, in order to uh, use less energy. Their aluminium has a good uh, starting point compared to, to, to steel or, or other materials. If you look at buildings, people want energy efficient buildings. They want the renovated buildings. They want buildings with high recycled content. Uh, their aluminium uh, also has a good uh, starting point. And then when it comes to energy and electricity demand, uh, there is also a need uh, for products to be produced based on cleaner energy and also clean technological innovation. So in total, we see that we will still be growing in the same segments, but the current megatrends are accelerating growth within some of these segments. But there's one point which I really would like to highlight when it comes to, to demand. And that is that the share of aluminium demand for greener aluminium is expected to have a much stronger growth than what we see for aluminium in general. And we recently undertook a large study uh, together with McKinsey where we looked at these different segments. And if you take, for example, automotive, now, uh, if you look at all the, the big major brands like Porsche, Ford, Mercedes, BMW, etc., they have set decarbonization targets, scope one and two and scope three for different places in time. Some have 2030, they want to be 100% uh, decarbonized on scope one and two. Some have 2040, some have 2050. And if you add all of this together, then we expect that the share of greener demand from the automotive segment will be 45% of their total demand in 2030. But that will have to increase to 80% in 2040 and 100% in 2050, just in order for them to meet the targets that they have set up to deliver on. So this is really where we see the biggest opportunity for a company like ourselves going forward. 
that's a significant increase in demand for greener aluminium, you know, growing from 45% of total demand from the auto industry in 2030 to 80% in 2040. If your projections are correct, how do you see Norse Kedro stacking up against your peer group to compete for this? If you look at the big Western producers, then you have a couple uh, which are quite well positioned uh, already. If you look at, for example, Russian producers, uh, they are quite uh, heavily hydro uh, power based. If you look at the Canadian producers, they are in a good position, and also the the average uh, Australian, no, um, Brazilian uh, pr- producer. But um, then you have the rest of the industry: um, the Chinese producers, Indian producers, Middle Eastern producers, and the like, where uh, you start from either gas or, or move further into the to the the, the darker energy uh, sources, uh, ending up at, at coal. And there we we have a, a good position. But if you look among the best, uh, we, we are still uh, at the, the, the very uh, top um, with, uh, with, with um, a higher share. I guess if you look at, at current portfolio, around 70 to 75% of it is based on hydropower. Um, the rest uh, is uh, gas. We, we have um, a large ownership share uh, in a uh, smelter in, in Catalum. And then we have a small exposure uh, in, in uh, Tomago uh, in Australia, which is uh, still coal-fired, but where they're working on a path towards uh, renewable energy also. Mm. Let's talk about supply. Um, now, the supply side is something our, our team has researched extensively. Uh, the aluminium industry has gone through a prolonged period of of wheat pricing over the last decade, but things certainly, you know, much more recently are starting to look better. Can you walk us through how industry supply has evolved and perhaps talk through China's evolution and what you think has changed in China? Yeah, no, I I guess that's the the, the big question these days. uh, Is today different? Uh, As I said, I came into the aluminium industry in in 2008 uh, and and that was... uh, when people believed uh, that prices would go to three to four thousand dollars based on the demand from from China, and as we have experienced uh, since two thousand and eight, uh, earnings uh, for uh, large aluminium producers has not been able to to meet the, the cost of capital, uh, and it has been very much due to China deciding to produce aluminium themselves, then deciding to produce alumina themselves, then deciding to build the bauxite industry in Africa or in Guinea to be self sufficient. Um, and, and that has pretty much uh, been the story uh, for, for the latter years. But as I mentioned earlier, um, we, we have constantly had a belief in the fact that at one point in time, environment will play a big role here. Uh, it, it can't be sustainable uh, to supply half of the, the world's aluminium uh, based on uh, coal-fired uh, electricity. And I think that's where we're starting to see some of the, the changes now. Um, it, it's been in the official communication uh, from China for, 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 for some years, um, but it's not been that visible uh, on the ground. Um, now we see um, production capacity uh, being halted, um, production capacity being uh, forced to, to close down if, if licenses aren't in place, environmental targets uh, in, enforced and uh, also a, a, a communicated ambition to, to be carbon neutral by, by 2060. And that requires a change. And also, you probably don't have 
the same need uh, to build um, the the country uh, as you did uh, some some years ago. So China has communicated a 45 million ton or so uh, ceiling uh, for own aluminium production. And uh, there's now an increasing belief that they will stand behind this. And I think that the strongest sign we, we see is that for the second con- year now, China has been an importer of primary aluminium. And that has not taken place uh, since 2009 uh, when they needed to adjust after the, the global financial crisis. So there are many things which makes us view um, the, the, the future uh, a bit more positive than, than in a while. But at the same time, we, we are coming out of uh, a, a quite special situation with, with the COVID crisis and, and other elements. So we, we want to see this <laughs> normalize uh, and, and mature uh, before we, we, we take mm. this for granted. But the signals are definitely in the right direction. We, we also need to be aware of and, and get better understanding of is um, will Chinese technology be build, used to build smelters outside China? Um, for example, uh, in, in, in countries like uh, Indonesia or Malaysia or, or, or the like. Uh, and um, we, we have seen some announcements of potential new builds there. Uh, still not um, significant uh, when you look at the expected uh, negative balance in the years to come. But um, uh, as, as we've seen historically, uh, Chinese uh, smelters have been built out at a much lower cost than Western ones. Um, so we, we need to see that uh, coming off to be very certain that the market will be tight in, in many years to come. So China's still a bit of a wild card. But looking closer to home for you, Paul, power prices are rising globally, but particularly so in Europe, which is facing a power crunch. Can you take us through how high energy prices are impacting the industry? Yeah, no, it's it's the perfect storm in the, the power markets mm-hmm. uh, now. And it's really hitting uh, Europe uh, in in a situation mm-hmm. where the European aluminium industry looked set to really benefit uh, from the tight markets uh, and the mm-hmm. h- high prices uh, based also on, on Chinese imports, they have mm-hmm. been hit by this um, crunch uh, of uh, low gas uh, inventories, uh, cold uh, weather and much mm-hmm. higher power demand than what was foreseen coming out of the, the, the COVID crisis. And it's gone to the extent that several uh, aluminium producers have had to curtail production in Europe now, Mm -hmm. uh, basically because they haven't got long-term electricity uh, contracts uh, and um, they're they're making losses. Um, Typically, Mm -hmm. the the 90th percentile on the cost curve over the latter years has been between $1,800, maybe $2,000 or so. For some of these smelters, it has increased to $4,000 $5,000. And even with an LME price on $3,000, um, that hasn't been enough to, to, to mitigate uh, that. So, so in, the, in the short term, pe- players that are exposed to, to spot electricity are really in a tough place now. The expectations is that markets uh, will balance uh, a bit um, as we're able to, to refill um, the underlying uh, gas inventories and the like. But then you get new um, macroeconomic uncertainties like the the Russia-Ukraine conflict, which could deteriorate this picture uh, again. So it is a a challenging balancing act uh, on on the the power side now. For us, we are uh, fully secured uh, on on a large part uh, of our operations uh, in in Europe. All our Norwegian smelters uh, are part of the 
the Norwegian sourcing uh, setup where we've secured power until 2030 uh, on long-term contracts. So for Hydro as a company, the high power prices is actually a net positive as we also have a long electricity position uh, from our hydropower operations, which we are selling into the market uh, at, at uh, record high prices. Um, we will uh, be announcing our, our Q4 results in the not too distant future. But in Q3, for example, uh, you saw that uh, the contribution from energy was much higher than what it has been uh, in the, the preceding years. And, uh, you know, if coal-fired power is, you know, you touched on actually, you raised this earlier, if coal-fired power is used to make aluminium, then the aluminium produces very carbon intensive how do you see um, carbon tax impacting the industry? You know, do you think carbon regulation could be weighing on some of your competitors' decisions to invest? And and perhaps you can round out sort of this this conversation around supply by taking us through how Norse Kedro is thinking about investment and capacity. Yeah, I, I think um, considerations regarding carbon is weighing uh, on on a lot of uh, companies' uh, decisions these days. Because we can take ourselves as an example there. Even though we have low carbon production capacity from a relative perspective, we are currently not considering building new smelters using whole hero technology without a pathway to eliminating uh, carbon um, the, the, the carbon which is, is uh, emitted uh, even in today's strong market price environment. Mm. So this is also one of the elements which I guess is um, creating some of the positive sentiment in the marketplace these days that uh, producers uh, like uh, ourselves are heavily looking into new technologies in order to produce carbon-free aluminium. And uh, the reason why we are positive to this also is that we see that consumers are willing to pay an extra premium for greener products, as we have experienced uh, over the latter years uh, through our two uh, big uh, green products, uh, Circal and Reduxa. So, so we have three pathways uh, to um, low carbon or, or zero carbon uh, or near zero carbon aluminium. Uh, one uh, is uh, post-consumer scrap. Uh, the, the recycling path, basically uh, using um, 100% post-consumed scrap together with hydrogen instead of uh, gas in the cast house will allow us uh, to produce uh, near-zero uh, aluminium. We, on the primary smelter side, we are looking into two different pathways. Uh, one uh, is the um, hull zero technology that we have. It's basically a technology that we've researched uh, for uh, six years or so that we're now piloting, which is a, a carbon-free uh, process where you're basically um, using uh, chlorine uh, as part uh, of the production process and keeping carbon in the loop together with uh, the chlorine, not emitting it, which is a completely different technology than whole hero, which is used for aluminium production today. And then the third pathway uh, is uh, carbon uh, capture. And that could be a solution for existing smelters, um, mm -hmm. uh, not for, for, for new builds. And there we have looked into 50 different uh, technologies 
and we've chosen one of them which we believe uh, is well suited uh, for the aluminium industry and we will be piloting that out uh, at our smelters uh, now in the years to, to come also. So we have are currently um, defining our aluminium metal operations as sustain and improve, maintain the position on the cost curve, provide uh, greener aluminium. And then if we see that we are able uh, to break through uh, on the, 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 the low or near zero carbon uh, aluminium production, then we will consider if we should start mm-hmm. reinvesting in production uh, of aluminium again. Given everything we've discussed, and you know, you mentioned yourself, I think you referred to it as being the perfect storm. Um, you know, whether that is the you know the ceiling China ceiling limit on production, or aluminium producers in Europe having to curtail because of, of energy, um, producers not being confident to you know increase capacity because of the implications of a carbon tax. All the while, demand is increasing. You know, so it really does actually sound like the perfect storm. Could we be looking at a sustained tight market here? Yeah, well. I guess if you're looking at the third-party analyst views, um, the consensus is for a tight market uh, for the the coming years, depending a bit on on what the view on demand in China is and how fast they ramp up some of their curtail capacity. But I think most players, if you look towards 2025 now, uh, are expecting um, undersupplied two balanced markets, um, but with a clear risk towards greater undersupply uh, than, than, than oversupply. And that's based on many of the elements that we, 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 we just uh, spoke about. And then, of course, moving beyond this period, if you don't get more capacity coming in, even with the increased amount of, of recycling and producers digging deeper and deeper into the scrap pile, this can extend uh, even, even further. But of course, this needs to be balanced with the absolute price and what happens to other materials. Now aluminium is pricing at extremely high levels in a historical perspective. Um, but we're still seeing consumer demand for it because other materials have also increased uh, quite a lot uh, as of late. But if aluminium stands out with a very high price compared to, to, to the others, that could also impact um, demand uh, all else equal. So it, it, it's many elements which can impact the total balance. But I think compared to a couple of uh, years ago, the, the general outlook now is for tighter markets for the coming years uh, unless we have some form of uh, demand uh, shock. It's such an interesting dynamic, isn't it? You know, in commodities, a higher price would normally attract investment. But in this case, we're not seeing it because of environmental concerns weighing on producers. The question is, you know, does this lead to a greater premium for green aluminium for producers like yourselves? There is already a slight premium for green aluminium. But consumers and manufacturers want green aluminium. And you referenced this earlier with the automakers. So can we see the premium continue to rise? Yeah, that is probably the, the question I get asked the most often by investors. Uh, what do we believe about green premiums and what are we getting paid uh, c- currently? Uh, and it is, of course, uh, the, an extremely relevant uh, question. We, we produce two brands of green aluminium. One of them is Hydrocircal. And that is basically recycled aluminium, where we include at least 75% post-consumer scrap. 
which is scrap that has been out in, in use. Uh, so not processed scrap, which is just cutoffs from the production process. And, and this scrap um, is typically dirty. It's tainted, it's painted. Uh, so it's not that costly to, to get your hands on. And um, that means that if you're able to recycle it in a way where you allow for a margin between uh, what you bought and the selling price, this can be quite profitable. And that's why we're investing quite heavily uh, into the recycling technology, allowing us to dig deeper uh, in, in the scrap pile. This product has quite a, a small supply uh, in, a, in a relative context because there's a certain amount of scrap available and it has technological constraints. So we've been sold out on our Circar product uh, for, for the latter years. And here we're able to generate quite a high premium um, in, a, in, a, in a context of different type of premiums. We, we don't disclose the actual amount because it's not commoditized. So it's not the same price for each uh, customers. And we want to, to keep that, that pricing power. The other green product that we, we produce uh, is uh, Hydro Reduxa. And that is basically the primary aluminium uh, product. Um, where you base it on, on smelting uh, based on hydro power. So we say that if it's less than, than four tons of, of CO2 per ton of uh, aluminium, then it's branded as, as hydroreduxa. Here, the absolute premiums are a bit lower than what we see on Circal because it's more of this product available. But we also see that we are better able to get that premium on this product than our peers because we are selling this branded product through our downstream arms. So our downstream extrusion facilities, they are negotiating directly with the end customer, with the building of buildings, with the automotive producers, etc. And they see the value uh, of more greener products, whereas a pure primary producer that sells uh, to an extruder or something, they struggle to get that premium. So our head of aluminium, he is not allowed to sell a single product of greener aluminium unless he gets a, a premium uh, on those. And we expect this to tighten going forward as the demand uh, increases. Of course, there are large estimates of what this could mean. You mentioned carbon border adjustment measures earlier or, or carbon taxes. And some of the, the, the more bullish analysts are looking at what if you were to compensate uh, for the amount of carbon from a Chinese product versus uh, a Norwegian product, the difference in carbon cost uh, for, for these could amount to five, six hundred dollars or even up towards thousand if you use uh, today's carbon prices. So um, mm. there, there, there is a, a large sample space of, of what this premium uh, could be, 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 be worth at the end of the day. Mm. And just as a, as a quick follow-up again uh, on, on the recycled product that comes from the existing or from the scrap, how, is there a limit to how many times um, aluminium can be recycled without it compromising uh, strength, I guess, or quality? Yeah, this is, of course, an, an audio podcast, but I'm, I'm smiling when you ask that because this is the, the favorite question uh, that our, our technologist likes to be asked. But because for aluminium, there, there is not... Uh, it, it can be recycled indefinitely without using its, uh, losing its uh, properties. And what is also good with recycled aluminium is that it requires only 5% of the energy compared to the original production of, of aluminium. 
So um, in today's uh, circular economy, uh, aluminium has uh, many strong uh, advantages. Paul, before we wrap up, I did want to ask if you can tell us where we might come across your aluminium in our everyday lives. You know, perhaps anyone driving while listening might have some of your aluminium within their car. Yeah, especially on automotive, uh, we, we are um, quite transparent on, on several of the ones we, we, we supply to. Um, so if you look at the Audi, uh, BMW, uh, Mercedes, uh, Peugeot, etc., all of those uh, consume uh, aluminium uh, from uh, Hydro. We are exposed to, to others of large producers also, but some of them we have uh, non-disclosure uh, agreements with. If you look on the, the consumer product side, um, we, we also supply uh, aluminium um, towards uh, many of the, the large uh, can makers. Um, it's more indirectly uh, after we sold our rolling assets uh, last year, um, but our metal uh, still de- gets uh, delivered to them. And, and also, uh, for example, packaging uh, companies like Tetra Pak or, or similar. So most likely um, you find the hydro aluminium in your everyday type of uh, products. And one last question, the growth story for Norse Kedra over the coming years. What do you see as the main drivers in continuing to create value for shareholders? And what are the key milestones on the horizon? Well, as I mentioned, I've, uh, I've been a part of Fido since 2008, and a lot of it has been focusing uh, on uh, self-improvements, uh, uh, ensuring our position on the cost curve uh, remains where it, it, it should be uh, in the first quartile, doing all we can in order to, to lift uh, returns uh, above the, the, the cost of capital uh, and above the demand for our investors. And that is something we will continue to to do going forward. But with uh, the strengthening uh, in the the marketplace uh, and and with the mega trends supporting us, we are also now in a position where we are able to grow uh, in certain uh, areas uh, because of our differentiating qualities. So um, ensuring uh, that we really take lead uh, in the the production and and sales of of greener uh, products, ensuring that we keep and continue the strong growth in, in recycling uh, that we, we are doing now while also uh, expanding uh, our extrusion operations to be able to sell these uh, products and also using our, our energy uh, competence and backbone to grow our new energy uh, businesses uh, is, is something that I'm really looking forward to in the coming years. But as a CFO, of course, ensuring that we, we keep cost uh, at the, the, the first quartile level, low operating capital uh, and have um, capital discipline. Milestones going forward. Um, well, I think many of the, the biggest milestones are relating to us now succeeding in many of the, the sustainability ambitions that we've set. Being able to produce uh, zero, uh, c- zero emission uh, products uh, within the time frame that we've set out is something that I would really look forward to follow. I have to say thank you so much for joining me today, Paul, and and sharing all your insights with us. Um, You know, as I said, that supply-demand backdrop for aluminium looks so interesting and it's a topic that we are tracking very closely at Antipodes. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that discussion and gained some insights into why our investment team remains positive on the outlook for Norse Kedro. It's a great example of an attractively priced company with favourable demand and supply dynamics 
and can be a market share taker as we move into a low carbon world. You can find more analysis on our key holdings on our website, antipodes.com. You can also follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter and remember to subscribe to be alerted as soon as next month's podcast is published. And a reminder, investors can access our global portfolio via the Antipodes Global Shares Active ETF, which is listed on the ASX. Search for the ticker AGX1. Please remember this content is general information only. It is not advice of any kind and doesn't take into account your personal financial situation, objectives or needs. You should seek professional advice before making any financial decisions.